the Magnus Podcast, episode 24. This is an introduction to William Shakespeare with Joseph Pierce. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. With your help, we are dedicated to liberating the liberal arts. And so far, so good. We just launched our very first round of courses, these three pilot courses in the Magnus Fellowship, taught respectively by uh, Joseph Pierce, Deal Hudson, and David Arias. And I got to say, just personally, after kind of working with the team to get this whole operation off the ground over, uh, well, well, well more than a year now for well more than a year now, uh, seeing actual people show up for these courses has been a tremendous win behind all of our sales. And so to all of our fellows who are in these classes now, and you seem to be enjoying yourselves, thank you. And if you want to become a fellow in the fellowship, just go to magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship today. Sign up. It'll take you about three minutes to apply. It's completely free. It always will be. And these are much more than just Zoom meetings. Uh, in fact, we don't even use Zoom. No offense to you if uh, if Zoom is your thing. But uh, we've, we've designed a, a, an essentially a proprietary learning management system on the back end of our website. It's available only to our fellows. And it's an entire network of collegiality, class interactivity. Uh, you know, the courses, the class members are getting together, talking about stuff, posting stuff on discussion boards, and then most importantly, meeting for these live and interactive classes. And I was a fly on the wall for the first week of them, uh, all three of them, and just really impressive stuff. I, I'm really impressed, uh, not only with our senior fellows teaching, but with the student fellows in the classes, uh, the level of discussion um, and also the accessibility to really anybody like you don't need to have necessarily any educational background in the classics or the liberal arts to join uh, to join the fellowship. And uh, it was really beautiful to see everybody coming together under the light of wonder in pursuit of wisdom so just um, big thanks to our team, especially Nicole, who uh, many of our fellows have met on the phone, at least a lot of work went into this and uh, that, that we're flying this balloon now is just a beautiful thing. So much more to come. We are going to be announcing our next round of courses scheduled very soon. That'll be coming up. So stay tuned here and on the website, magnusinstitute.org for that. So on today's episode of the Magnus Podcast, we're going to be bringing you uh, the first lecture of Joseph Pierce that he taught for the fellowship, how these classes work. They're about two hours long each week, and then they're split into equal parts lecture and text-based discussion. And so what we're going to be doing on this podcast uh, from here on out, now that we have these classes rolling, is basically bringing you the lecture version of the courses whenever uh, it would be fitting. So in this case, I have to say, uh, first of all, Joseph Pierce, you might've read some of his books. You should, if you haven't yet, uh, but he is as good uh, of a teacher as he is an author. Not every good author can really handle a class and give a thrilling lecture. Uh, he can do both. And, and really I was so, impressed. My expectations were high as Joseph Pierce after all. Uh, but when I was a fly on the wall in this lecture, I'm like, wow, this is good stuff. And personally, I've never had the greatest fondness of the work of William Shakespeare. And that's probably because I'm, you know, I'm missing something, right? But I'll be the guy who goes to, uh, you know, see Othello and be like, who's the good guy, you know, Romeo and Juliet, like, I don't, I don't like these people. And that's, probably due to uh, like, obviously due to something that I'm missing personally. And now I understand that there was just a problem with me, not Shakespeare. So I'm glad we got that figured out. But I, I really, after hearing Joseph Pierce's lecture here, and he gets into some, some crazy stuff, like the question of was Shakespeare 
a closeted Catholic, uh, Shakespeare's life and time. So the whole context and the importance of, uh, I guess, the faith dynamic here and the role of the Catholic Church in his writing, even uh, maybe some connection to him and uh, Edmund Campion, uh, who's got a very uh, intriguing life himself. So all this stuff unpacked in such a beautifully pedagogical way, uh, thanks to the brilliance of Joseph Pierce, is really something that we hope you enjoy. And we'll be bringing you more from this particular course on Shakespeare with Joseph Pierce in the coming weeks. But for now, please enjoy this lecture. And if you like it, you can share it with your friends. Give us a good review. Enjoy. There are three ways of reading a literary text. There's the recreational reading, where we read it purely for fun. And this is absolutely great. Um, and, and then there is um, a subjective reading where we read it on a deeper level, but we're not actually making any real effort to be objective. In other words, we're reading it what we think to be closely, but what I would call on a sola scriptura basis, just a text and us with no context whatsoever. Okay. The problem with that is that we tend to then project our own pride and prejudice into the text and having the text reflect back to us what we want to see there. So as with all um, uh, acquisition of authentic knowledge, we have to seek for objectivity, which is getting outside of ourselves into the other. Okay, Um, so we want to look at what other voices there that speaks with more authority than me when I'm reading a text. And of course, the most authoritative voice is the voice of God. And God knows Shakespeare better than Shakespeare does. Unfortunately, God's not going to tell us. Okay, so that we that option is not open to us. But the next most authoritative voice is the authorial voice. Nobody understands the the, the work of literature better than the author himself. So what we need to do is discipline ourselves in the reading literature as far as possible to see it through the eyes of the author. Now, we can still disagree with the author. For instance, I love 1984 by George Orwell. Um, I think it teaches very valuable lessons, but Orwell is very pessimistic. Uh, And at the end of the work, you know, Big Brother wins and and, and Winston Smith doesn't even have his own beliefs anymore. He's actually been completely brainwashed. He's he's complete and utter victory for Big Brother. Now, I think that's uh, um, an unnecessarily dark way of concluding his cautionary tale. Um, but we have to understand where Orwell's coming from. And then once, once we've done that, once we've disciplined ourselves to, to see through the eyes of the author, we can step back and say, okay, I understand what he's doing. I understand what he's saying. I don't necessarily have to agree with him. But then you have to have good reasons for not agreeing with him, okay? Because he sees the work with uh, more authority and with more clarity than you do. So as regards Shakespeare, If we know nothing at all about William Shakespeare and nothing at all about the times in which he was living, we will be groping in the dark. Now, we can do that. And you obviously you can you can uh, ascertain aspects of the truth of a text purely by reading the text. But you look at what Shakespeare's done when they treat Shakespeare as a tabula rasa. In other words, he's not a person at all. He's just something that we paint our own prejudice upon. No, we we, there, there, there are. Certain schools of in, in modern academy, for instance, queer theorists who are looking for phallic symbols. I think Shakespeare is writing nothing but graffiti on a toilet wall. OK, because they're reading it and having reflected back to them what they want to see. So knowing who Shakespeare is will help us to, sh- to show what Shakespeare was doing in his plays and more to the point, what he wasn't doing in his plays as regards what some of these other people are saying. All right. So, the times in which Shakespeare was living. When he was born in the early years of the reign of Elizabeth I, Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, made himself supreme head of the church. He established a state religion. He made the Catholic Church illegal. He made it punishable by death to disagree with, uh, to to basically refuse to acknowledge him as supreme head of the church um, in England. Uh, St. Thomas More, St. John Fisher and others were put to death for refusing to play the game. Um, 
Edward VI, his son, was basically a puppet king, a boy king uh, who was raised a Protestant, and that Protestant revolution continued. And during his reign, uh, the mass was formally abolished and made illegal, and the prayer book Protestant service replaced it. Then we had a brief interlude where Mary Tudor came to the throne and uh, endeavoured to uh, restore Catholicism in England. Let's take a step back. When Mary Tudor came came to the throne, um, the virtually the whole country was very much in favour because the England was an extremely Catholic country. Um, the number of religious per capita was higher than almost anywhere else in Christendom. Um, the the um, shrines to the saints and to the Blessed Virgin uh, were uh, amongst the most, uh, 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 in terms of numbers, of the whole of Christendom. Two of the major shrines of medieval Christendom were in England. So, you, you know, you obviously have Jerusalem, you have Rome, you have Santiago, Santiago de Compostela. But beyond that, the two major uh, shrines were Canterbury, uh, the shrine to St. Thomas Becket, who was martyred in the 12th century, uh, and Our Lady of Walsingham, the shrine to Our Lady of Walsingham in Norfolk, which was the premier Marian shrine of Christendom. And people traveled from all over Europe to, to visit uh, Our Lady of Walsingham. The, all these popular devotions were quashed against the rule of the people. And the only reason Henry VIII got away with that is because when he um, uh, gathered all the church property to himself, when he basically dissolved all the monasteries, he could not have done that without buying the aristocracy, by saying, look, you join me in this, you can have that abbey, you can have that monastery. And so basically, there, it became a feeding frenzy of greed that got completely out of control. And in the end, the monarchy was weaker because they, Henry VIII had inadvertently created this whole new class of avaricious plutocrats who now had much more power in terms of land and wealth because they pillaged the church. The church, on the other hand, was where people went for education. If they were sick, if they were poor, the, the, the monasteries where, where people went to. So the whole social framework of England collapsed, lead, leading a uh, uh, huge increase in poverty and in uh, penury, in begging. The government responded by, by um, bringing in new laws that um, against the poor and against begging, you know, basically cutting off the ear, branding them with, with a hot iron and, and making them a slave for two years for the crime of begging, even though it was the policies of Henry VIII and, and Edward VI that caused the problem. There were several huge uprisings of the English people. Um, and the first was the, the Pilgrimage of Grace in northern England, um, and there was the Western Rising in Cornwall, Ketch Rebellion in Norfolk. These began, the, the one in the Western Rising began the day after the mass was banned. Um, and uh, then the northern, the northern Rising a little bit later, all during the, the 16th century. And the only reason they didn't succeed, by the way, there was a huge armies of people rising up, was because they only had things like pitchforks and swords, whereas the, the, the army had artillery, cavalry. And of course, they might have won if they'd had the aristocracy on their side, but the aristocracy had all been brought out as part of the plunder of the church. So this is what the situation that, that we find ourselves in in 1564, when William Shakespeare is born. And at that stage, it's only six years into uh, Elizabeth I's reign, the majority of the people in England are Catholic still. It's only um, uh, uh, under 30 years since the, since the martyrdom of uh, St. Thomas More and John Fisher. But there were three types of Catholics. Because you were fined heavily for refusing to attend the state religion, most Catholics were conformists. Um, they moaned about the new service, the new Protestant service. They longed for the return of the good old days. But other than that, they did nothing. And then the second group were the church papists. That was a term that their enemies gave them, um, who lived a double life. Outwardly, they conformed. But secretly, if there was a priest, and it was Ill illegal to be a priest in at this point, punishable by death, it was illegal to harbour or hide a priest, punishable by death. But if there was a priest in the area, these church papists would also go to mass, go to confession, uh, etc. They were living a double life. 
And then the third group were the recusants, those who refused to attend the Anglican services, the state religion, uh, and were fined. Now, Shakespeare's family were amongst the most militant, if you use different terminology, militant recusants or devout Catholics. They amounts to the same thing. In the country. So his mother's family, um, uh, the Ardens, were, were, again, one of the most militant families. Uh, a couple of Shakespeare's cousins were executed for their part in so-called Catholic plots. Um, as for Shakespeare's father, he, he was a very successful man locally in Stratford-upon-Avon uh, and, and became mayor of Stratford. But when the oath of, oath of supremacy was extended to politicians as well as clergy, because up until that point, this is when Shakespeare was a, a child. Um, up to that point, only the clergy had to um, sign the oath of supremacy to say they acknowledged the king or queen now as the head of the church. Um, but then I was extended to politicians, right, to, to, to mayors of town, etc., when that was brought in, John Shakespeare, Shakespeare's father, stopped attending council meetings. He effectively resigned from politics. Uh, in other words, he clearly would, was not prepared to sign the oath of supremacy. In 1592, by which time Shakespeare is living in London and writing his plays, uh, John Shakespeare is fined for his recusancy. In 1606, Shakespeare's daughter, and that's the year that he's uh, worked, has just written plays such as King Lear and Macbeth. Some of his darkest plays, we'll, we'll talk about the reason for that at some point. Um, that uh, his daughter Susanna was also fined for her recusancy. So his parents and his, and his favorite daughter, the one who became executress of his will, uh, were, were fined for their refusal to attend Anglican services. So we know that uh, that Shakespeare, Shakespeare's family, was so Shakespeare clearly raised in a Catholic family. Let's talk about Shakespeare himself in just a moment. But another very intriguing thing, you know, it's like detective stories when you study these things. And I should say, by the way, at this point, that when I came to the States, Back in 2001, there was a, a literature professor at Ave Maria University where I was teaching at the time who was convinced Shakespeare was a Catholic. And my attitude was, I'm sorry, that's just wishful thinking. Um, we just don't know enough about Shakespeare to have a judgment. The only real honest position is to be an agnostic on the issue. We just don't know because we don't know anything about him. And anyway, uh, what happened, is I, I liken it sort of metaphorically to a jigsaw puzzle, a jigsaw. And my, my argument was, well, we, there's too few pieces, right? We can't get a, a picture because there's too few pieces. And then I kept coming across pieces. Like you sort of find a piece somewhere, find another piece. And at some point, I think, yeah, well, there might be something to this. And then when I got to that situation, I thought, I'm going to start looking for the pieces, right? Not just trying to stumble upon them, upon them by accident. I'm going to start looking for them. And that's when I started my own research and they would say two ways of, of, of showing Shakespeare's Catholicism. What I'm doing this evening is to show the biographical and historical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism. Um, the other way of doing it, which will be the rest of the course, is the textual evidence, the evidence from the works themselves, the plays and the sonnets and the poems. And those two sides come together. I, I like, liken it to a Gothic arch, that the biographical evidence is supported by the textual evidence. And the textual evidence supported by the biographical evidence, the two hold together like that. And it can be proved beyond reasonable doubt. And let me just say one other thing. I think that this battle is being won, at least for anybody being engaged with it. I was told by someone who, who attended a talk by the director of the National Shakespeare Theatre in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. And he gave a talk on whatever secular subject concerning Shakespeare. And then during the Q&A, someone said, what was Shakespeare's religion? And he said without hesitating, well, many people seem to think he was Catholic. In other words, that the first thing that comes in his mind is, well, if we talk about Shakespeare's religion, he's probably a Catholic. OK, so this is not, by the way, my wacky theory here. This is something that's become mainstream. Um, and I could give a history of 
of the evidence and why you know it wasn't really discussed until the 19th century but we don't really have so much time but i happily answer questions remember i'm inviting you the second half of uh, of, of the of the of the session to actually have questions for me that there's a there's a lead if you like um so yes to detective story this is wonderful in the middle of the 18th century okay so 150 years after shakespeare's death um they're renovating the shakespeare family home and in the rafters of the house they come across this handwritten document uh, several pages long which was the spiritual last will and testament of john shakespeare william shakespeare's father and basically it's it's like a a last rite of desire Do you know about baptism of desire um you know that uh if, if there's no priest available to baptize you um but you you but you would have wanted to be baptized in the baptism of desire well this is there's gonna be no priest probably at john shakespeare's death probably because priests are illegal so he signed this saying i'm, I'm a catholic i believe and he goes for the various items of the creed saying that he wants a priest at his deathbed and signs it this is handwritten what's very interesting is that um one of the jesuit priests in england wrote to the jesuit superior in rome in the 1580s asking for um no excuse no actually it was the early 1600s uh, asking for more copies no no it was not it was the 1580s so two different strands of thought coming 1580s asking for more copies of the testament because many people seek them and for many years it was thought this must be the douay reams new testament um but that would have been a bit odd because these priests would be put to death the moment they're discovered to be priests so carrying around the country with them hundreds of copies of a printed book would be like committing suicide um so it'd be unusual so if it's not the douay reams new testament what are these testaments and um the other fact is that that letter was written uh several months before the douay reams new testament was published so not only is it unlikely it was actually impossible so they weren't doing that so what was it well various research this is a jesuit scholar uh in the early 20th century came across text the exact same wording as john shakespeare's will in switzerland and in mexico uh and i think in spain same wording the author as to charles borromeo cardinal archbishop of milan now this is getting it's like a detective story what's what on earth is shakespeare's father got to do with charles borromeo saint charles borromeo well in the 1570s there was a big plague in milan And so many people were dying there weren't enough priests to minister to the dying so saint charles borromeo being a good and holy pastor composed this spiritual last will and testament had them printed and handed out throughout the city so that people could sign them as a uh, an extreme unction of desire in 1580 the first group of missionary jesuit priests to england including saint edmund campion traveled overland from the english college in rome to england now those of you that know your european geography will know that if you do that about 200 or so miles north of rome is milan and we know that saint edmund campion stayed as the guest of saint charles borromeo um and these and so 1580 having stayed with him and and one of the other priests preached to saint charles borromeo they came to england uh it seems to me inescapable that that was when that the, the printed copies of the of the testament came to england with with saint Charles, with um with uh, uh saint edmund campion and his companions subsequent english priests on the way to england also stayed with saint charles borromeo so there'd be further ones coming through of course at john shakespeare sorry thank john john shakespeare's spiritual testament was handwritten and the reason for that is obviously clear more people wanted them than there were supplies so they were being copied out so so they have this all, all this mystery going on surrounding so what about shakespeare himself now 
So we know he was obviously raised as a, as a Catholic and a, and a devout Catholic, militant Catholic family. Well, legend has it that Shakespeare had to leave Stratford upon Avon in a hurry, having uh, um, offended the local lord of the manor, Sir Thomas Lucy. Now, there are various romantic myths about why, wh what he did to offend him. So one is that he was poaching. That's a good one, isn't it? So guarantee that's going to be one of them. You know, Shakespeare's Robin Hood. Um, poaching uh, in St. Thomas Lucy's land. Um, and therefore had to run away when he was when he was discovered. Another is that Shakespeare wrote a sonnet attacking Sir Thomas Lucy. I like this is my personal favorite, because um, if that was the case, of course, then we have this uh, this missing sonnet which will probably never come to light. But we don't know. But we do know that he had to leave in a hurry, having offended Sir Thomas Lucy. That all the legends agree with that. So who was Sir Thomas Lucy? So Thomas Lucy is the local lord of the manor was a Catholic-hating, a Catholic-baiting lord who oversaw the raiding of Catholic homes. We know that Shakespeare's family's friends' homes were raided. And we know that the homes of Shakespeare's own friends, his school friends, their parents, were raided. We don't know for certain that Shakespeare's house was raided, but we do know that John Shakespeare was scared of it being raided. That's why the spiritual last of the Testament was hidden in the roof, okay, incriminating evidence. So Shakespeare's made an enemy of the person who was the enemy of his family and his friends. We know that much. There's then the lost years and there's a romantic, and this is speculative, and I don't, in my book, The Quest of Shakespeare, I don't make a great deal of it. Other, other, other critics that make, make, make much more of it. That we know that when, Sh when Shakespeare left Stratford-upon-Avon as a young man, uh, before getting married, he spent some years in the country uh, as a schoolmaster. This, we have this from a contemporary source. Recusant households uh, in England, uh, very often the wealthier ones, practiced homeschooling. They would actually offer, often have priests, uh, obviously in disguise, all priests were in disguise because it was punishable by death, as the schoolmaster. But uh, it's entirely possible that Shakespeare was a schoolmaster in one of these recusant homes. And then there was... Um, uh, in uh, 1580 or 1581, I can't remember the exact year now, uh, William Shake Shaft, who was an actor, uh, was um, a member of um, uh, the, the Reckison family at Halton Hall in Preston, just outside uh, in Lancashire, just north of Manchester. And um, we know that Shakespeare's father uses... Uh, alternative names to Shakespeare, such as Shakespeare and Shakespeare. We're not really sure why, but it was not. It was done. So it's not that un, that un, un, unusual or, or uh, impossible to believe it was, was Shakespeare, the actor called William Shakespeare. And if that was the case, he was in Houghton Hall the same time as St. Edmund Campion, who spent some time in Houghton Hall before being arrested and subsequently executed. So, um, uh, St Stephen Greenblatt, for instance, in his book, um, Within the World, waxes poetic and romantic about St. Edmund Campion, who had written plays that were performed in Prague in the Czech Republic. This Jesuit priest, shortly before his execution, with this teenage boy who's 16 years old, basically learning the art of playwriting from the saint. Now, that's speculative, but it's possible. But... Let's take things that are less speculative and, and I would say prove beyond reasonable doubt Shakespeare's Catholicism. First of all, there is the fact there's no reference of Shakespeare ever attending an Anglican service. So in other words, the, 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 the historians have, have, have scoured every sort of church parish records in any of the parishes in the area of London and Stratford-upon-Avon where, where um, uh, Shakespeare lived. There's no reference of his being a member of any parish. Now, of course, modern scholars take this to be proof that he was an atheist like they are. But it, what's, the, what's the logical position here? That, that Shakespeare's not going to, to Anglican services, the same reason that his father isn't, and he's paying fines for not doing so, and his mother isn't, and their extended family aren't, and his own daughter, Susanna, is fine for not doing, because he refuses in conscience to uh, 
bow the knee before the state religion. And then we have, you know, why is it then if Shakespeare's Shakespeare's um, father was fined and Shakespeare's daughter was fined and some of his cousins were put to death, why is Shakespeare uh, not, there's, why there's no record of Shakespeare being fined? Well, the first thing I would say, by the way, remember, this is a jigsaw puzzle with missing pieces. So the fact that we don't have a record doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means we have no record of it happening. But certainly you can't say that it happened because we don't know. But for instance, the, the composer, William Byrd, who's a, older than Shakespeare, but a contemporary, was also a recusant, who also refused to attend Anglican services and also pay the fine. He and his wife paid fines for non-attendance. And then the Queen's Attorney General, basically the chief lawyer in the country, presumably at the Queen's own behest, told the authorities to leave him alone. Just don't find him. Just leave him in peace. And William Byrd, although the Queen knew he was a Catholic, um, uh, was quite happy as long as he didn't make a big thing of it, just to do what he does. And just don't, as long as you don't mention it, we're not going to worry about it. So th these are what I call safe Catholics, not secret Catholics, because I think we have this misunderstanding that Catholics in England were also, first of all, a small minority who were hiding in corners and keeping a secret. That was certainly the idea I had. But certainly when Shakespeare was a child, the majority of people in England were still believing Catholics. By the time that he died, the balance had, had, had certainly shifted away from that for reasons that if we have time, I'll, I'll discuss. Um, but as first, so the, the point is that, that, that the Queen had known Catholics in her court. William Byrd, who she liked and, and admired, Got her. He was writing simultaneously music for her and music for the mass. And we still have, you know, his mass for three voices, mass for four voices. Um, but in the Queen's court, there were so many Catholics in the Queen's court. That the church had to actually issue. Instructions, guidance as to what Catholics could and could not do. So, for instance, Catholics were allowed to attend Anglican services in the Queen's train, in other words, if they're part of the Queen's company, but they were not permitted to take communion. And that's because a large number of the Queen's court were Catholics. And the reason for that was a large number of the population of England were Catholics. So, for instance, Shakespeare's patron, the Earl of Southampton, was a recusant Catholic. We know that the Earl, and he was a favourite of the Queen at the same time, simultaneously. And we know that while he was a favourite of the Queen, the other Southampton was actually harbouring the Jesuit martyr, St. Robert Southall, or Southwell, if you presume, who Shakespeare almost definitely knew well. And we get a chance to discuss that, maybe. Um, and the, obviously the Queen didn't know he was harbouring Southall. So Robert Southall, that would have been dangerous. But, you know, she knew he was a Catholic. She knew he was a recusant and didn't care. And that applied to many other members of the court because the Catholics were a very powerful presence. Certainly by the 1590s, when Shakespeare's in London, still, if not the majority, then a very large minority of the country. So they were everywhere. So let's now look then at um, St. Robert Southall a little more closely. There's an appendix to uh, my book, Shakespeare on Love, which is a book on about Romeo and Juliet called The Jesuit Connection. That if you want to dig deeper into this, I would recommend you you check that out. But. So Robert Southall basically wrote. Uh, obviously, addressing his words to the Earl of Southampton. Asking his poet, in other words, Shakespeare because I sat down with Shakespeare's patron, to use his muse, his gift, for something um, uh, uh, of service to God. I'm not really about eros and the, the sort of the, uh, the worldly things. And Shakespeare rises to that occasion in his poetry, in The Rape of the Crease, uh, and Venus and Adonis, that's another discussion. But I want to talk about the presence of Sir Robert Southall's poetry in Shakespeare's plays. So Sir Robert Southall was a poet and a, and a bestseller. Well, you have to understand in the 1590s that the novel had not been invented yet. 
um, that the, the first novel probably uh, people say might be Mort Darthur, which is 100 years earlier. But basically, the the, the novel really didn't, didn't really take off until Don Quixote uh, by Miguel de Cervantes, which was published in 1606. Cervantes, by the way, providential coincidence, died on the same day as William Shakespeare, St. George's Day in, in 1616. Um, but prior to the, the advent of the novel with, uh, with Don Quixote, poets were the bestsellers. People only read poetry or went to plays. OK, this was where everything was happening. So the sonnets, uh, you know, there was a, a, a sonnet craze which Shakespeare parodies and sat as a satire on in Romeo and Juliet. So poets were bestsellers. So Robert Southall's poetry was um, was, was best-selling poetry, even though he was an outlaw. We know that Queen Elizabeth herself had read St. Robert Southall's poetry. It was known by the literati. So Shakespeare in plays such as Romeo and Juliet and the Merchant of Venice, uh, King Lear, uh, Hamlet, the, 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 we'll get to this in more detail later in the course, but the graveyard scene, the longest memento mori perhaps in literature, um, you know, the graveyard scene, the last poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio, etc. There's a whole engagement with Sir Robert Southall's poem upon the image of death. He's plucking lines from Subtle in that, which we'll maybe get a chance to look at later. And my favourite uh, example of this textual evidence of Shakespeare paying, paying, paying tribute to Robert Subtle is in King Lear. And we'll look at this in more detail. But I want to tell you a little story about this uh, um, before we have the break, perhaps. I was in Rome several years ago maybe eight, nine years ago, and by myself, and I was in an Italian restaurant, and I just had this wonderful Italian meal. You know, you've got Italian food in Italy. is just, well, just to say Italian meals in the United States, just. So I just had this wonderful Italian meal, and then I've got half a bottle of wonderful Italian red wine, undrunk, beside me. So I think, well, ah, nothing else to do. I'm going to sit here for another hour or so, finish this bottle of wine and read and just soak up the ambiance and atmosphere. So I was reading the collected works of St. Robert Southall, collected poetry of St. Robert Southall. And there's a poem he wrote called Decease Release. And it's about Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's written in the first person. So in the voice of Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's actually almost creepy. Because, of course, it's written in the voice of Mary Queen of Scots on the night before she's beheaded. And of course, Robert Southern would be arrested in 1592, have three years imprisoned, uh, suffering torture repeatedly, and then would be hanged, drawn and quartered in 1595. To bear that in mind, King Lear is written about 10 years after the martyrdom of Robert Southern, who Shakespeare almost certainly must have known. Um, come back to that but anyway and I'm reading this poem a really evocative poem and Mary Queen of Scots says in the poem that that in being crushed like like that that the, the, the aroma the fragrance would rise to heaven like incense like a prayer and she said and I will be as God's spice and as I read that, I thought, wow, because one of my favorite speeches in Shakespeare is the come lets away to prison speech that King Lear says to Cordelia towards the end of the play. To come lets away to prison, we can laugh at uh, gilded butterflies, at courtiers. Um, and we can be as God's spies. And what were the Jesuits? They were God's spies underground and what did they become when they were martyred god's spice shakespeare takes the god's spice makes it god's spies and that's an intertextual connection with St. robert Southall. intertextuality by the way as a, as a literary trope is something we need to be aware of as we read shakespeare and, and indeed literature generally so so robert Southall was was ministering 
in London at the same time, from the late 1580s to his arrest in 1592, at the same time that Shakespeare was there, and the other Southampton is Shakespeare's patron. Sir Robert Southall is the other Southampton's own personal confessor. We, we, we have all this documented. There, there were Catholics in London, but it was the most dangerous place to be a Catholic. Basically, you know, this is this is a low tech culture. It's not like today where, you know, Microsoft is listening to me as I'm speaking to you, probably. Um, you know, in those days, the further you got from London, the safer you were. So the north of England, for instance, some parts of Lancashire just remained Catholic right through the centuries. But London was much more di difficult. So therefore, the, 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 the Catholics in London were a closely knit group um, of uh of people, and it's, it, to me, it's unthinkable that Shakespeare, as a Catholic in London, and whose patron was the Earl of Southampton, would not know Sir Robert Southall, who's also a poet, um, and, and is intimately uh, connected to his patron. It's inescapable, and the fact that we have all this banter between them in their respective works indicates that. I'm going to wrap up fairly quickly now, so that we can have our break, but. Documentary evidence. Shakespeare actually was taken to court. We have a court record of William Shakespeare. He was charged with threatening the life of two people. So this is interesting. Shakespeare obviously had enemies that he that he disliked enough that he was taken to court for threatening to kill them. Apparently, allegedly. I mean, the court case took place. I, I think he was found guilty. There were, were several co-dependents with Shakespeare, uh, some of whom we know uh, are recorded as recusants, as Catholics. So Shakespeare's co-dependents were recusant Catholics. The two men who accuse him, accuse Shakespeare of threaten, threatening their life, were local uh, priest hunters, who and we have letters from them where they're boasting of raiding Catholic homes and burning crucifixes and Catholic books on the streets outside the homes, boasting of it in London. Oh, of course, those people not being particularly liked by the local Catholics. So, so whatever does we have? Shakespeare's enemies are those who are enemies of the church. His friends are those who are fine. When Queen Elizabeth I died in 1601, all the poets of England lined up to write elaborate, sickening um, eulogies to good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, etc., etc., except one. William Shakespeare was silent on the issue to such a degree that another poet attacked him for it and said it was outrageous and demanded that he write a, 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 a poem in praise of the Queen. And Shakespeare still refused to, 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 to speak on the matter. When James I came to the throne, he promised to, to lift all the anti-Catholic laws. You have to understand all this now. right? Uh, and so the Catholics were absolutely euphoric. And for the time, a brief time, a honeymoon period, under a year, I think about 10 months, James lifted the anti-Catholic laws. Catholics were coming out of the woodwork. There were masses being said all over the place, and everybody was astonished at how many practicing Catholics were still around. By this time, Parliament was in the hands of the Puritans. And King James was a Scottish king, unsure of himself about how he's going to stabilize his power. And he weighed up who has the most power, the Puritans in Parliament or the Catholics. Because the Puritans said, we are not tolerating your tolerance of the Catholics. Bring back the old laws. Make the, the papists illegal. King James I brings back all the anti-Catholic laws. Bows to the Puritans. Now think about this psychologically. Try to put yourself in the footsteps, in, 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 in the shoes of, of the Catholics of England at the time. They'd all been waiting for the queen to die. She's an old lady. They knew that the, the success of the throne was James, who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth put to death, who was a Catholic. Although James was raised Protestant, he married a Catholic wife. 
His mother was Catholic, and he promised to uh, to be tolerant of the Catholics and to lift the laws. They were just waiting for the Queen to die, and then everything would be okay. Then after this very brief moment of freedom, the king brings down all the old laws on, on, on the church. And now there's a young king on the throne who could be king for another 30 or 40 years. And for the Catholics of England, many at this point surrendered. Can't continue to pay the fines. It's not possible. Remember, this is the time Shakespeare's writing. This is the back. This is all that happens. The backdrop to Shakespeare's plays. We can't um, pay the fines any longer, and many capitulate and conform. This is the definite turning point. However, there were a hot-headed few who said, "Well, now the only alternative is violence." And so those hotheads were used by Queen King James's. Uh, spy network as dupes and they were set up in the gunpowder plot uh caught red-handed and then the, the puritans could say that was to, to blow up the king and parliament and then the puritans could <laughs> okay so we've had our 10 minute break uh it's now 9 40 we've got another 50 minute sessions i hope you have some good questions for me i'm just going to spend five minutes finishing up I was planning to spend the first 55 minutes and of course we had a 15 minute preamble to, to introduce us to the course and uh, what have you so I'm not going over um, technically speaking but I'm not gonna be another five minutes because so basically bear this in mind uh, as Queen Elizabeth in the eyes of many Catholics and in the eyes of Saint Saint Paul the fifth Saint Pius the fifth the Pope was illegitimate she was not a legitimate child because she was born to Anne Boleyn uh, when Henry was still married to, to Catherine of Aragon. And, of course, that the, uh, the, the church had refused to give the divorce. So, therefore, the marriage to Anne Boleyn was not valid in the eyes of the church. And, therefore, Elizabeth was born uh, outside of wedlock. And therefore, she's, she's illegitimate. And if she's illegitimate, she can't be the legitimate monarch. So... Uh, a lot of Shakespeare's, so you have to divide, one way, dividing Shakespeare between Elizabethan Shakespeare, the plays he wrote during the reign of Elizabeth, and Jacobean Shakespeare, the plays he wrote during the reign of King James. Now, there's no suggestion that King James was not uh, the legitimate heir to the throne. Um, uh, in fact, the Catholic position was that Mary, Queen of Scots, was a legitimate queen, and James is her son. So... In the, in the, so the, in the Elizabethan Shakespeare, a lot of the plays are about usurping power. All right. So it's not the legitimate ruler. It's the usurpation of power. And that's one way that Shakespeare can analogize. In the Jacobean Shakespeare, after, after the reign of King James, this whole issue of illegitimacy and usurpation is not the big issue any longer. But we do know at the time of... Um, that brief period of, of freedom, Shakespeare wrote the play, uh, which is arguably his most Catholic, Measure for Measure, where the heroine is, of course, a, a poor Claire sister. And his other play written during this window is called All's Well That Ends Well, and I'll let that speak for itself. Um, but then immediately after that, we have this uh, spate of extremely dark places. At this moment of despair or desolation, when, you know, with the majority just surrender, uh, and the, the hot-headed minority choose terrorism, in that backdrop, what does Shakespeare write? Othello, Macbeth, and King Lear. It's at that time. And I could say, I could say much more about that. I don't have time, but you by all means ask questions. So the uh, final thing I want to say is the most compelling biographical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism is the last known act he did in the sense that we have written, written records, legal documents, before he retired and left London and returned to Stratford-upon-Avon. He bought, the last thing he was bought, he bought the Blackfriars Gatehouse. Now, the Blackfriars, of course, were the Dominicans, uh, and the Blackfriars uh, uh, community, uh, can't be called, Dominicans monasteries, but uh, we call them religious house. Uh, the, the, the Dominican house in London 
uh, was in a place called Blackfriars. And if you've been to London, you know there's still a Blackfriars bridge and there's still a Blackfriars tube station. There's no longer a Blackfriars because that was, of course, destroyed by Henry VIII. The Blackfriars Gatehouse, which was the huge house, which was the gatehouse to the Blackfriars community in London, remained in Catholic hands from the time of the dissolution of the monasteries, so from the time it stopped belonging to the Dominicans. And we know this, of course, by deeds of purchase, right? Property deeds. Um, so we have the written documentation. It remained in Catholic hands, one after the other, from the 1530s, dissolution of monasteries, till Shakespeare buys it in 1612. So a period of almost 80 years. That might not be significant in itself. In fact, of course, if Shakespeare's not a Catholic, he'd be the first non-Catholic owner. But what is very uh, interesting about this house, the Blackfriars Gate House, it was known to be uh, a centre for illegal Catholic activity in London. The Blackfriars Gate House was raided several times. There are reports about there being secret passageways down to the River Thames so that, so that um, uh, whoever's in there, priests that, that are trying to hide and get can, can escape. We know of another priest in the wake of the gunpowder plot who knocked, was knocking frantically at the door to be let in as he's being pursued. Um, so this is, uh, there's other stories about it as well, which I talked about in my book. So this is a known centre for Catholic activity. This is the house that Shakespeare purchases, not to live in, because he basically buys it and then leaves London. Now, of course, secular biographers say this was just an investment. Right, so it's just a secular financial investment. Now, think about this for a moment. Shakespeare's a wealthy man. He'd already, I think in 1600, uh, bought New Place, the second largest house in Stratford-upon-Avon for his own family. Right? He's a wealthy man. And yet he'd never purchased any property in London at all. So why suddenly decide to invest now? Why, would, why did he not invest 15 years earlier? Um and of course, the reason, by the way, the, prob the probable reason that he never never purchased a house in London is because the payment of recusant fines is connected to being a property holder. So if you're just lodging in someone else's house, then uh, you're not uh, prone to those fines. That may well be the reason he never purchased anywhere in London. I don't know, but there would be a good reason. But anyway, he certainly didn't. He clearly rent rented accommodation. He buys this place. Then the other thing, he then stipulates that the person, the tenant who's living there before he buys it should continue to live there. In other words, whatever the house was being used for before is going to continue to be used that way. And, and that person's name is John Robinson. And in the same year in which Shakespeare purchased the Blackfriars Gate House, John Robinson's brother enters the English College in Rome to study for the priesthood. John Robinson himself is the only one of Shakespeare's London friends who's with Shakespeare during his final illness and signs his will. This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. To learn more, we do mean more, visit magnusinstitute.org.